Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first this week to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram uh, under Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Otherwise, you can uh, shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can uh, help you with all your cannabis growing questions. Thank you so much for joining us again, and I'm going to pass it next to Dr. MJ. Hey everyone, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am a little bit late getting here, but just got in the door and I'm excited for the show today. So yeah, excited to see everybody and uh, it'd be fun. Happy to have everyone back as well. We got more majority of our crew here tonight, which is always awesome. I'm going to pass it next to Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I'm excited that we'll be talking about uh, the illegal pesticide research that just came out recently because I see a lot of names uh, that I recognize and um, uh, another good reason to grow your own, of course. So to, uh, to encourage that is always good. Absolutely. And uh, to some extent, I think it might encourage some people to go through the legal market as much as it might be overtaxed and a little bit more expensive. It can provide that safety that I think a lot of people would prefer to have. But with that said, I also want to introduce Noah the Grower. Thank you, Jack. How's it going, everybody? I'm uh, I'm Noah the Grower. Two E's on Instagram. You can find me there. And I'm also excited to hear about the papers you guys are talking about. I'm ready to get into it. Forward to this one as well. I think it can be very informative. And uh, there's another one that we can follow it up with that is sort of similar uh, topics there. But before we get into that, last and certainly not least of the panelists who's joined us so far is the American War. Hello, Jack panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on the YouTubes and the American one underscore with Akeens on the IG. Um, most of you know where to find me and uh, you can hit me up in the DMs on the IG. And yeah, glad to be here and looking forward to uh, the discussion. I am as well, and I've uh, made it so that anybody can share the screen. So if Matthew would like to, you can share the article if you have any notes or anything written around it, and um, we can maybe start off from there. The other thing that I wanted to mention is if we have enough time for it after we get through the results and you know analysis of this discussion, uh, there's another one that's been making the rounds, at least on Instagram and other cannabis communities, um, Twitter, et cetera about how cannabis users potentially have higher levels of heavy metals within their blood than non-cannabis users. So that might be an interesting one to discuss as well, as it's uh, somewhat uh, relevant to the current discussion. But without further ado, Matthew has the research, original research article here from Open Access uh, Journal of Cannabis Research. And so I'll let Matthew go ahead and uh, lay the groundwork and uh, tell us what this is all about. This is another example of a research report that I'm also kind of going in somewhat blind. I very cursorily looked over it uh, already, but I haven't uh, drunk deep. So uh, we're gonna hit this uh, together. The title of the research, like you said, is from Journal of Cannabis Research this year, very recently published. Uh, the title is High Levels of Pesticides Found in Illicit Cannabis Inflorescence Compared to Licensed Samples in Canadian Study Using Expanded 327 pesticides multi-residue method. So, um, and I do know that they're talking about uh, sort of a new way that they've been analyzing flower samples uh, in order to catch some of these because you don't always catch these in these tests. Like a battery of tests can only have so many. Um, 
before it becomes kind of untenable. So for people who didn't know that, 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 that definitely is the case. And uh, should I just go on to the abstract? Let's see what I say. That's always a great place to start. I think it gives people the general overview of what we're going to be discussing for probably the next half hour to an hour or so. Yeah. Sure. And I like how uh, upfront, just like how they've organized this abstract. People don't always do this. Not always appropriate, but they have a, a background, a method section, a result section, and a conclusion, plus the keywords. So that's always cool. So the background is, as cannabis was legalized in Canada for recreational use in 2018, with the implementation of the Cannabis Act, regulations were put in place to ensure safety and consistency across the cannabis industry. This includes the requirement for license holders to demonstrate that no unauthorized pesticides are used to treat cannabis or have contaminated it. In this study, we describe an expanded 327 multi-residue pesticide analysis in cannabis inflorescence to confirm if the implementation of the Cannabis Act is providing safer licensed products to Canadians in comparison to those of the illicit market. So obviously, uh, <laughs> they do have a, a point that they're trying to make. Uh, they say that an extensive multi-residue method was developed using a modified quick, easy, cheap, effective, rugged, and safe, or Quekers, sample preparation method using a combination of gas chromatography, triple, quadruple mass spectrometry, and liquid chromatography. Triple, quadruple mass spectrometry. So I'm actually not familiar with this process myself. Um, usually different words come after those two, those first uh, prefixes. I think it's the simultaneous because, yeah, it goes on to say for a simultaneous uh, quantification of 327 active ingredients in cannabis inflorescence. And I think it's to try and do that all at the same time versus breaking down like uh, individual particles, but I could be wrong about that. Verily. The results are application of this method to Canadian licensed inflorescence samples revealed that uh, 6% sample positivity rate with only two pesticide residues detected. Myclobutanil or equal four or equal twenty equal four twenty equal twenty and diclobenil at the method's lowest calibrated level, which is uh, 0.01 micrograms per gram. Canadian illicit cannabis inflorescence samples analyzed showed a striking contrast with a 92% sample positivity rate, covering 23 unique pesticide active ingredients with 3.7 different pesticides identified on average per sample. For Pyrifos, or chloropyrifos, I should say, imidacloprid and myclobutanil were measured in illicit samples at concentrations up to three orders of magnitude above the method LCL of 0.1 micrograms per gram. So that's pretty massive. That means that not only, uh, <laughs> not only do they find much more, they found uh, many more types of pesticides were in the illicit uh, cannabis in, in Canada. The conclusion is... These results demonstrate the need for of an extensive multi-residue method capable of analyzing hundreds of pesticides simultaneously to generate data for future policy and regulatory decision-making and to enable Canadians to make safe cannabis choices. All right, that's the abstract. This one comment I had uh, that one of the comments from our episode a few weeks ago had kind of talked about how they read on the forums and they knew for sure that UV was effective because it said it on the forums. And then that just, this reminded me that like, I also read on the forums for a while that there were people that said 
that using Eagle 20 is like the best way to go because it was a super effective pesticide and that you got to use the Eagle 20 and that, you know, this was before they knew about the problems like it being combusted and turning into hydrogen cyanide and uh, being, you know, poisonous essentially to the end user. So um, before that, you know, people were posting stuff on the forums like that and, you know, not necessarily backing it up with data or safety support or anything like that. So I'm glad that we do further research and, and continue to follow it up with stuff like this to, uh, you know, see how risky or, or not risky it actually is. And it seems like in this case, they actually found a large majority of the illicit market because they're not regulated. They're like, fuck it. We're not going to get tested. So they're that's spraying one, the shit that they test for. That's one. Of, right. I think that that's a real risk. Right. And that's one of the benefits of regulation is that you can make the market safer for end consumers. I, I am curious, though, like where their black market source came from. Um I mean, they're not just like usually confiscated different bags from the guy down the street, right? And like, yeah, do they solicit it? Like, yeah, that's a good question. Stuff, right? I, I think mean, it's, it's usually confiscated it. cannabis, but sometimes they'll go to like events or buy oh, from. Is it confiscated cannabis from a specific area, or do they describe that someplace probably in the methods where they got the the black market material from for the control? It would be interesting, I thought, but. Um, if it's a large enough source, if it's a large enough sample and conf confiscated materials may be, then that sort of alleviates my concerns about it. It is interesting to understand how legal researchers would go about sourcing, quote unquote, illegal product. Uh, so that is uh, something to ponder over because, like I said, it would make sense if it was confiscated because police keep it in. Uh, vaults until they can have somebody come legally destroy it right. because contrary to people's beliefs and claims even if you ground cannabis up into a powder it still has thc terpenes and cannabinoids uh somebody said if you could invent a grinder that would simply get rid of all of that stuff you'd be you know a millionaire and be able to sell that invention uh, they have to actually burn it or destroy it some other way that makes it unusable or unsmokable so um yeah that's just an interesting little side thing about when they have these giant storages, like sometimes like police departments will do a big burn, but sometimes it's like too close to a city. So like people will like report getting like high or like, you know, secondhand smoke effects or whatever from them burning 10,000 pounds of cannabis at the local police department, like right out back or whatever. So there are some funny things like that, but um, Matthew has highlighted 24 illicit cannabis samples were obtained from seizures by law enforcement officers across the country and submitted to Health Canada for laboratory testing in 2021. So I think that I was uh, correct in my guess there. And uh, Matthew found it and confirmed in the method. So thank you, Matthew. Yeah, good guess. By the way, Dr. Coco, I feel like your audio is a little lower than usual for whatever reason that might be. Mm, maybe I should move my microphone over like closer in front of me, but I'll, I'll figure that out. I'll try to adjust something. Is it better now? Could be my speakers were just lower too, but uh, yeah. It was either that or your gain is lower or your like actual proximity to the mic like right now i'm talking from further away and now i'm talking a little bit closer and you can actually hear me a lot better i should but, really make a difference with this thing but it's probably some setting that i've done i just was doing recording in in my other room so i moved the microphone back and forth but does it sound better now do i sound okay absolutely okay. sounded good to me the whole time i got headphones on though but um it is interesting 24 different illicit samples were taken from confiscated product um i would wonder like I if product that is confiscated is more likely. <laughs> it's probably fresher product that they confiscated from the from the illicit market. Learned You're probably right about that. Yeah, there's people are making that comment too, and I think that's a, a valid conjecture, right? 
there could be some of that going on, some uh, interesting backdooring and that kind of thing. They have this interesting table that shows where uh, these samples come from, so license and, and illicit, right? So uh, we have British Columbia, uh, the prairies. Um, sorry, I'm not familiar with uh, ge geography of Canada. Uh, Ontario, Quebec, and, and Atlantic, apparently. And um, the most illicit samples come from Quebec, and the most licensed samples come from Ontario. And so total for licensed samples, we have 36, and for and from Alyssa, we have 24. Now, how do they, what do they mean by sample? I don't know. I can check and try to find out what they exactly mean by that, but I think they just mean sources. I think well, no, any amount of cannabis. An flour. amount of testable cannabis. Right, like a gram or an ounce or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but there would be 24 different sources of it, like 24 different seizures. Um, 24 is not a huge N, but it's it's decent, especially if they're reporting really high significance rates. Um yeah, I don't think I don't think we're very surprised that there's more pesticides on the black market crop. I don't think this is necessarily a, a, a suggestion to go to the legal market. I think this is a suggestion to grow your own. Um, it is safer probably in the in the regulated market everywhere than than the black or gray market. But growing your own and knowing what's happening in the plants is always going to be the safest. Is it possible that seized samples have a higher propensity to be something that would test for uh, an illicit pesticide than maybe something like, let's say yeah. my buddy, uh, let's call him Dave. He grows down the street from me and he grows his own just for himself and he sells a little extra to his buddies. The cops aren't really ever going to come across that usually because like it's this one person goes over, picks it up and comes home. And there's not really, it's not like a big distributor or, you know, a, a trap house or something like that where somebody's pulling down like, dozens of pounds and, and just you know backdoor and having people trap it especially in canada man i bet in canada they're they're focusing their enforcement efforts on like larger illegal grows that are running pretty sketchy operations um so yeah i, I think you're right i think there is probably some self-selecting in terms of that particular population is because they have acmpr which you just reminded me that they're federally legal there and they have ACMPR, which is like their medical, exactly. which has been legal for a long time. So like a small grow is very likely not going to fall under illicit yeah. cannabis and won't even be uh, considered like home growers or, or people sending that ounce to each other through the mail, which you can legally do in Canada. Yeah, it's never going to no, show these up. These are warehouse this. growers or people that are converting indoor spaces without permits to grow in a country where it's relatively easy to get permitted. So they're cutting corners and they're doing other things to, to bring in a harvest at low cost. And that's exactly the type of grower I think that's more likely to use sketchy pesticides. Um, I, I still think the you know, the point stands that any, you know, black market product is more risky than a regulated product, but both of them are more risky than a product that you grew yourself. As long as you know what you're doing, I agree right? With that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, with as that. long as you're not an idiot and you're not using, you know, bad pesticides yeah. on your own crop. Well, but that's, but see, that's I was talking the, more like mold. That is an important caveat, I guess. Yeah, good, good yeah, point. It is an important caveat. Aspergillus is what gets me because, like, I think that there might be some home grower out there who doesn't, you know, get their stuff tested. I don't. And maybe there is some amounts of aspergillus. And if there was someone fragile, they might be damaged or injured by, uh, untested homegrown cannabis which i only say that because so there was a case in the medical market this is, different. This is something yeah, you yeah. had to have actually physically sprayed on the plant and i agree with that yeah. i'm going a little bit off 
the beaten path yeah. by just saying from a safety perspective, a home grower could fuck something up and like make sure. people smoke moldy stuff or or whatever else. Sure, but at that point, you got nobody else to blame at least. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, well, it's like the same with a moldy tomato, right? You could grow a shitty tomato yeah, and then eat you that. You can grow sick. your own moldy tomato. Yeah, exactly. Or, you or know, a poisonous, um, uh, what was it? Potato. I think Matthew talked about there was a breeding effort. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I mean, it's, that, a, it's an important point, though. I guess homegrown too. isn't necessarily better or safer, but if you grew it, you at least know more specifically what's happened to the plant. But I think the, but why I like that caveat, I think, is because it sort of illustrates part of the problem, right? Is, and that's why, like, there's this, and I'm not a legal expert on law and like philosophy of law or whatever, but like, yeah, the, the sort of the onus of, of accountability and responsibility, right? And, um, and also that like people don't know what they don't know. So people will think, as I've as I've experienced personally and professionally, people will think that uh, everything's fine when it's not. Oh, I just went down to Home Depot and I got some uh, pest spray, and, and now I have no pests, and that's as far as it goes for them. And it doesn't even occur to them, you know. Like I've always, you ever, you ever be in a situation where somebody is like, "Oh, well, let me know if you have any questions about something," and then you don't, you don't have a question about something, and then you check in with them, and then they're like, "Why didn't you? Why didn't you ask me?" Because I didn't think that it was a problem, right? That's this is a, such a common misconception or, or well, problem. What you can that... buy at Home Depot is such an issue because, like, it's not there's not like a section that says like, this is banned for use in cannabis or this is banned for use in, you know, edible foods. Like it's just kind of well, all sure. under the pesticide section. So when somebody goes in there, like you said, they might buy something like a microbutanol or something else that's banned or dangerous to use on their crop. And then they're like, Oh, well, it got rid of all the pests, you know? So yeah. I must've done something right. And they don't realize that like they might've done something tragically, you know, dangerous for themselves and whoever consumes it. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like you've highlighted a few of the uh, big bad wolves here in the illicit side of things. Michael Butanol, uh, Paclo, which is a Paclo PGR in the, in the highlights. That's a common uh, yeah, one. Yeah, these are. I just looked at the sample detection frequency. So it doesn't um, it really was just, say these are all of the samples combined. So it doesn't tell us here which samples were illicit and which samples were. I'm kind of interested to see if they found, found anything in the license market. No, they do here. So this was a license. This is yeah. what they found in the licensed. And then in illicit, they found everything else. Is my interpretation of the table. I could be totally wrong. I think you're correct about uh, that. I agree. I agree. But it says I, six total, and then they only shows six, frequency of two. Five. Oh, yeah. No, it's 6% of 36. That's oh, the percent. There you go. Thank you, Doc. Yeah. yeah. So that's two of the 36. Yep. That's, that's exactly what it is. A 6% response rate. One of them was tested positive. I can't read that, but... Um, yeah. And then the other one, yeah. microbutanol. What's the first one? Diclobinol. Diclobinol. Yeah. How did the licensed ones get uh, contaminated? That's Maybe a very good question, Tal. Well, it's a small amount. Look at the pesticide con concentration. It's 0 0.01. So it's like a very, but all of them kind of have small amounts, but I mean, maybe they had uh, overspray from like a, a non-cannabis greenhouse or something. Like maybe it, but I, I think this was all indoor production. If I... No, I don't think there was overspray. I have no idea. It's totally spurious on my part, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what happened. And remediation won't clean out pesticides. Just the, it kills mold and mildew and, and live things, right? 
some remediation well, can get rid of pesticides. Kind of remediation. Yeah. It depends on yeah where they are, but it, oftentimes they're just on the surface of the sample. Yeah, that's true too. Um, I mean, like the technical answer is, I guess there could be ways, but and with chemicals, I think you have more of a likelihood. The problem with like uh, like microbes and things is that you know even if you kill the microbe, the metabolites and bio burden that they produce is still going to be there usually, unless you somehow separate it. But is there any word on what the acceptable limits of those things are for any testing? I mean, most of the stuff that they test, they allow trace amounts of it anyway. So it has to be oh, a sure. threshold in order to even trigger that test. And then what a lot of producers will do when they fail a test is they'll just mix that back in with other products until it becomes basically dilute enough that it passes. <laughs> yeah, there are ways to game that system for sure. Yeah. Off the top of my head, though, I don't know the details. Um, and it's kind of serious, so I don't want to like convey anything that's not correct. But yeah, that is a good point. And usually the the tolerances are really low, though. I mean, in my opinion, um, what is really low? I don't know if it's lower than 0 0.01 micrograms per gram. But like the first two, I don't know if the, those licensed samples would have actually failed. Oh, right. yeah, I know. I see what you're saying. And they just were detected. Look at license market, 6% fail. Illicit market, 92% fail. That's pretty, that's a big, pretty big difference. No matter what, you know, yeah. I, I guess the sample size. Well, considering there's small, 50 samples. But... Yeah, that's, I mean, a pretty clear indication. Although it is a small sample size and there might be some of the issues, like I mentioned earlier, of like, the fact that it's in Canada, the fact that like what is considered an illicit sample and like where they're getting those from might make them more likely. But even with that being said, it, I think it's pretty, it's just sort of obvious if you think about it, right? The unregulated market, there's going to be some amount of people that are going to spray stuff because they know it's not going to be tested to their market that they sell into. Somebody else might test it later when the police confiscate it for a study, right. but they're, who's accountable? Which one of these yeah. uh, people in the illicit side, none of them are held accountable for this. They don't give a shit. They already so, made their sale. They've they've gone about their day. Their life is moving forward. So they're either they're either ignorant or they're ambivalent. I, I got to point something out here. They, Seventeen of twenty four samples tested positive for microbutanol. That's a that's an extraordinarily high response rate just for one pesticide. I mean, it's popular that, in Canada. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the, I mean, do you think that that's that strikes me as being a not very good sample. I think it is indication that the cannabis market in particular, Eagle 20 is like, it was for a long time ubiquitous. And I think the can right. cannabis community in Canada for a while was like how many other illicit markets or unregulated markets were. Some people just did whatever they could do. And some of those people are still just doing that. They still have the bottles from when they bought them however many years ago, keep spraying it when they need it. Well, we have more than 24, let's say, unregulated growers probably listening to us right now and if we sampled their butt i doubt we'd find any that were using microbutanol so there's some That's all of our of followers are good honest people who don't do anything wrong obviously i'm just saying i can't imagine that three quarters of the black market Canadian growers are spreading eagle 20 still. I just, I and I don't think that's the case. That's where I was saying, saying earlier, that's the what I'm stuff saying. that's being confiscated. It falls into like that category yeah, of people that have a big enough warehouse trap operation that they're sketchy enough. And like you're saying in Canada, the licensing 
it's although it's expensive for like a mom or pop maybe to get into it if you're like a business and you've been doing you know well um it's not prohibitively expensive to get a license in canada so to avoid paying the relatively low startup cost in you know perspective to what all the other things cost the lights the land the genetics the you know nutrients everything that goes into building out a full scale grow if you're going to cut the corner of well i'm not going to get the regulation then you're probably also going to cut that corner of i'm not going to follow the rules of what pesticides are banned and what pesticides are not banned and like another one is pyrethrins matthew often mentions like the difference between pyrethrins and pyrethroids and i think a lot of people that's just over their head so like they that one might be like less intentional because like pyrethrins and pyrethroids like some people even when i hear it i think like wait isn't pyreth uh rins like aren't those fine and then it's like oh wait no i guess they're not in canada and then i have to look it up in california and i find out probably oh they're also banned here and that's the bad one for x y or z reason but it's tough there's a lot of them i mean there's like several banned pesticides and uh some people got used to using a lot of them and it's uh if it ain't broke don't fix it for them type thing. yeah and there's definitely risks out there i guess my only point is i don't think this is a good representative sample of what you would get if you purchased illicit cannabis either I think you need more samples the United States. i agree with yeah. you i see what you're saying i didn't quite understand what you meant the way that you phrased your your point earlier but after you spoke more i, I kind of understood what you mean yeah i i see um it probably is indicative that like you know, the amount of samples that we have collectively probably isn't good enough. Or they're all similar in a certain I'll, way. Like I'll say I'm suggesting. And that similarity is there are all these like larger growers that are kind of doing shady things. And that's why they're A, getting busted and B, using sketchy pesticides. Well, and see, this actually happens in uh, California and other markets. Blacklist XYZ on Instagram has done a good job. And so is uh, Boof Busta and a few others. They'll buy illicit market products and test them specifically like carts. And I don't want to say 99 out of hundred carts from the street have pesticides in them. And that's like all of them across the board. Like there's really people are like, carts. Oh, this is the clean brand. This is the good brand. And then yeah. that booth buster will go and buy it. And it has like 16 out of 17 banned pesticides. Like it's almost crazy or almost like comical how many of these pesticides, these companies, it's like, are they mixing it in as a fucking ingredient? Like at this point, like to test as high of a percentage and as consistently as they are, it's almost like, it feels like propaganda and there's been a lot of anti-cannabis propaganda, but some of these people I truly believe are within our community. Like people that like split, you know, uh, you know, pre-rolls to show that the bud is shitty on the inside. It's not actually, you know, good flower. And then they'll go and test stuff. Like it's, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, anti-cannabis propaganda. It seems like people that are actually trying to understand the safety. Well, of, I think they just don't understand that it's, it's systemic. So you might use one, on one crop and then take a clone and think it's not in there anymore, but hell yeah, it still can be persistent yep. in there. And now you're using another systemic pesticide and then you use another systemic and now you get all this stuff in the, you know, still within the plant that you don't realize just because you didn't spray it recently that it could still be hanging out. Sub Subcool bought clones and the hash failed for one of these pesticides. So I didn't hear, I'm sorry. I was saying a lot of them were systemic and some uh, I've heard stories where they sprayed in a room like um, one month ago or whatever. And when they put plants in there, they ended up getting uh, bust, you know, getting results for contamination. Some products and, they get like uh, absorbed into the wood, like if you have like a wooden greenhouse, for example, um, and then they like off gas. 
or or they'll like or you know you don't know if you're maybe leaching out uh into the soil you know if you're like just setting up some like plywood from home depot or something you know i mean there's all these funny little ways that this can happen and it's if you're not day. thinking about it because most people, people don't use scrog nets oh yeah like, It's and a, it's not like it's they're a, bleaching down their room like every single thing. Some people do, but like uh, even if you do that, I think there's still going to be some sort of residuals that we're not perfect. We don't go through and like get every single micron of every single you know chemical in the room out of there. So there's going to be residuals, and it's going to be difficult if you put yourself yep. in that situation. You're going to have to be dealing with it for a little while. So it's a reason to avoid just it all to, in the first place. One of the big sources is the filters for the the HVAC system. So it gets caught in the filters, um, either the individual units or or wherever, and it, it'll sort of seep through eventually and come out the other side. So um, it is hard to once you've sprayed something in a room to completely rid yourself of that thing. I think a lot of I think a lot of it is what Spartan uh, opined that like just kind of a lack of like basic information, coupled with like maybe uh understandable like distaste or 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 just un, you know it's not really something people want to think about right it's a little complicated but also it's just like you know i want this problem done because a lot of people are are doing things in a panic so if i were to like you know make a um uh if i was to suppose how this often happens i think like jack was saying like you have a problem you can't fix the problem or you've already had a, a problem solving strategy from, you know, before many people knew. And when I say many people, I don't mean people who are professionally trained because they've known for a long time since before I was born. No, I mean, people who never took the, the, the time to find out. Um, and, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast many times where I've encountered people on occasion who, do they want to play the how long can I allow the systemic pesticide to be in my product question game with me where it's like, I know it's bad, but can I use it? And, you know, can I just wait a long time and then it will just like, you know, you know, metabolize away because they, they know enough to be dangerous, right? They know enough of this technical information to know that maybe possible, maybe, but they don't, uh, and certainly people don't have the, there's no resources for that. So it's kind of like, no, I, I think you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I think you shouldn't play around with that fire. I also wanted to uh, address the point that you you point out, Jack, with pyrethrins. Uh, maybe we could find it more in the, in the paper, but like, I don't know what they mean by this. I don't know if they mean permethrin. I don't know if they mean pyrethroids. Can't imagine they mean pyrethrin because of how I know it uh, sort of uh uh decays very rapidly so it's kind of it's just weird just weirdly weirdly worded there to me and uh, we also have propranolol butoxide which i've talked about here and in other places which is used as an enhancer for pyrethrin products very often and i know in california um you know this was one of the reasons why some products that were just pure pyrethrin were allowed and products that were uh, pyrethrin plus propranolol butoxide were not allowed because they didn't want to have that enhancer. So that's just interesting to note, I think. Is, is, a, is a, as a doctrine, I forget the name of it, you know, the neem oil extract? As a directing. Is, is that legal in Canada now? Because I don't see it on that list anywhere. Uh, I don't know. 
actually. Okay. I, I, think, it is, it I think it is legal. It is I'm pretty sure, Tao, that it's legal. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that's... It just that's has a funny that's... name, but it's not, uh, not super bad. I mean, if yeah, you use it right. For that right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, Avamectin, that's a big name, right? Um, Azozystrobin, Bifenazate, these are all pretty big names. Boscalid is pretty toxic. Carbaryl is really bad. Um, Chlorpyrifos is really common in agriculture. Dichlorovos is really common. Fluopyram, imidacloprid. And there's my, there's my famous story with my friend um, Malathion and how you shouldn't be applying that. Um, but we also have things like spinosad here. Spirodiclofen, spiromesifen, spirotetramate. And the tetramets in general are, uh, I think these are fungicides, if I remember correctly. So, um, so yeah, so it's pretty common. Oh, and here's permethrin. You know, that, that mist that escaped my, uh, my, my once over here. So we have pyrethrins up here, uh, or down here rather. And then we have permethrin. I can't believe I didn't see that. Um, but yeah, so now I really don't know what they're talking about. Mm. <laughs> Is the binding agent the one, because you said, I think pyrethrins are okay in California, but enhancer. It, the enhancer, um, is that dangerous in its own regard on its own? Like what's the, like enhancing something just seems like it makes it more effective to me, but it, I would imagine that it comes with a, a double-edged sword. There's a drawback or a health consequence or environmental I think they don't want it on like the smokable material. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where if you're applying it to like tomatoes or something, it's way different. And it is to like apply it onto like the inflorescence. And hey, I'd rather they, I'd rather the law was um, cautious rather than just being like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, apply it. You know what I mean? That's a good point. Yeah. So, Better than being willy nilly and uh, slowly, may, potentially poisoning people over time or rapidly, you know, in some cases. Is there anything uh, further from this that we want to look at or highlight? I just want to highlight that um, if I'm reading this table correctly, that uh, for some of these, you know, the amount of micrograms per gram was kind of egregious. Uh, so for chlorpyrifos, we have uh, 0 0.01 micrograms to 30 micrograms, if I'm reading this right. For midacloprid, we have 0.1 to 60 micrograms per gram. For Eclabuna, we have 0 0.02 to 70. Damn. And... Um, yeah, I think those were like the big ones. Some people were drenching their shit, essentially. Yeah. It's scary. That shows you how little the care is in, in some of these really trappy, shitty fucking operations. I get it. Everybody's trying to make their fucking living, but uh, I think that there's a better way. And if they just took a little bit more time, they probably even get more money and, and have a better product at the end of the day. So I think it's all about education, even for these people that are in that illicit market, just trying to do it for a, a buck, you know, if you could do it a better way. Um, you can even save money. These pesticides aren't cheap sometimes, so. No. Yeah, and Amazon. People... Go ahead, Matthew. Oh, I was just say, yeah, and not only are they not cheap, but, um, uh, you know, people share them with each other. Like, they have a problem. They're like, dude, what do I do, you know, allegedly. No, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and they get and they get stuff shared by their either agricultural friends or they just have people who buy stuff in Amazon and other, you know, online distributors got into a lot of a lot of trouble recently. Um, been cracked down on for uh, pesticide um, 
uh, sales and deliveries, things that are, are controlled substances, not in that way, uh, but similar. And, um, you know, I think that that's still kind of a problem uh, in that, in that it's not totally controlled, but uh, yeah, th that's another factor is that people will find their ways and uh, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, there's a good question in chat. Who paid for this study? I think it's Health Canada. Let's find out. Health Canada funded, I'm pretty sure. Uh, looks like open access funding provided by Health Canada. Boom. That to me is about right. as objective of a funding source as you're going to get. Unfortunately, it's not perfect, but they're, yeah. you know, I would say from what I've seen from the research that they've done, I actually think that they're doing a decent job. And I think that this is doing a decent job. It's not ever going to be perfect. We're not really ever going to have a perfect scientific research article, but we just keep on getting more information and it gives you a view into what is available <laughs> on the scene. And gives I'll you some write insight. one eventually. It's that certainly will. an uncompromised funding <laughs> source. I mean, that we, we know that Health Canada doesn't put editorial constraints on the research that they fund. Uh, that's what you're worried about with funding sources is that they're going to put their finger on the scale of the results of the study. Right. It's not like um, we're, you know, the, you know, uh, this was funded by a lab testers of, of Canada or whatever, like who sell the lab testing equipment to try and get more so complicated get lab equipment. First review of the manuscript before it gets published and get to re recommend changes and things like that to the authors. That stuff where they they turn over their editorial control because of the funding obligations or certain funding sources will only fund research that's, you know, already aligned with their interests. And that's not true about Health Canada either. Yeah, I think this the, is uh, well done. At the end of this discussion sets, uh, section, they say that uh, high illicit cannabis pesticide positivity rates were also observed in other jurisdictions. So there's other research. If you ever wanted to take a look at Imperly 4 being sampled or uh, referenced here. And they say that to the author's knowledge, this study is the only extensive pesticide multi-residue analysis that compares pesticides in the licensed and illicit cannabis markets in a nationwide jurisdiction where cannabis has been legalized. And then at the end, albeit being a small study, our results do support the government of Canada messaging where quote, consuming illegal products could lead to adverse effects and other serious harms. Testing of illegal cannabis has found contaminants like pesticides and unacceptable levels of bacteria, lead and arsenic, which I guess they're referencing some article here. from That goes perfectly into this uh, other article that I have. Uh, I don't know if we want to do a little bit of discussion or get right back into another scientific article, but um, this article talks about levels of heavy metal in cannabis users' blood, comparing them to non-marijuana slash non-tobacco use, exclusive marijuana use, exclusive tobacco use, and dual use. And they compare them. A 2005 to 2018 study from environmental. It's related. It's something different, but I, I think we can dive into this and keep talking about both of them. Does anyone have any other comments or is there anything from chat that we should go over? And then, yeah, let's just, uh, let's jump into that next one. Yeah. Well, I mean, sounds, I still think they, they relate great. to some extent. So, but not, you know, the, the pesticide use is more about what growers are doing to their plants. The, the heavy metal issue to me, there's a really different takeaway about that. And it'll be interesting to see what everybody else's takeaway about it is. But 
But mine isn't to be as concerned about the black market as much as it's to be concerned about, I mean, some aspects of it go on the black market, but outdoor grows. Inputs. Yeah, just inputs. I agree with that. If you get all inputs tested, you don't worry about it. Yeah. What is what is Spino said? Is it um is it a chemical from a bacteria? It's or I guess now? it could be uh I mean I mean originally it's they're uh they're they're metabolites. There's many different spinosins, and then the product spinosad is is those spinosins. And so uh, they, you can synthesize natural. them. They're not synthetically producing it yet. Well, what do you mean by natural? Like are they found in nature, like uh in a bacteria sure. like Okay. Sure. It's a bacteria that produced it originally. And you can ferment the bacteria or you can synthesize the same compound. And it's bad for humans. Bad for humans. Pretty low toxicity in humans. Okay, because it's on the list. That's that's on the list of yeah, yeah. That's uh illegal, right? Right. Right. Right, right, right. Toxicities. I'll just read off because I took a screenshot of it before the episode. Um, If you feel like you have heavy metal poisoning or heavy metal toxicity, some of the symptoms are abdominal pain, chills, or lower body temperature, dehydration, diarrhea, feeling weak, nausea, or vomiting, scratchy feeling in your throat, numbness, or prickly sensation in your hands and feet. Severe symptoms of heavy metal poisoning that can be life-threatening include abdominal or abdominal, <laughs> abnormal heartbeat, sorry about that, arrhythmia, oh, uh, an- anemia, brain damage, and memory loss, difficulty breathing, kidney damage, liver damage, miscarriage in people who are pregnant, and risk wow. developing cancer. So those are the risks that you face from heavy metal exposures and heavy metal poisoning. Now I'm going to share my screen and we'll get into the little bit of data here that has been going around the community. And here's something that I've noticed. I see a lot of headlines shared and then the data doesn't get dove into, right? So you get the CNN article, marijuana users have higher levels of heavy metals in their blood. Okay. So this title is actually blood and urinary metal levels among exclusive marijuana users in N. Haynes, 2005 to 2018. And uh, I guess I'll pass it to Spartan Grown and he could read over the uh, abstract while I drink some water, uh, put that sexy voice to use. Oh, I appreciate that. Now I got to use my eyes, man. I don't know if I trust them. I can't scroll the screen, man. Where's the abstract objectives? Oh, intro. Okay, there we go. Marijuana is the third most commonly used drug. I lost my spot. Oh, you want to read the first part? Marijuana is the third most used drug in the world, the objectives, because the cannabis plant is a known scavenger of metals, a scavenger of metals. That's a really fancy way of saying a dynamic accumulator. We hypothesize that individuals who use marijuana will have higher metal biomarker levels levels compared with those who do not use their methods. We combine data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey 2005 to 2018 for N equals 7254 participants, 7,254 participants classified by use, non-marijuana, non-tobacco, exclusive marijuana, exclusive tobacco, and dual marijuana and tobacco use. Five metals were measured in blood and 16 in urine using inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. Urinary metals were adjusted for urinary creatine. 
that's important. I'm glad that they included tobacco use in this study because I often think that that's left out. And I'm thinking like, you know, some people might get negative effects from being heavy smokers that aren't, you know, factored into some of the studies. So it's cool that they included even tobacco users. The results, participants reporting exclusive marijuana use compared with non-marijuana, non-tobacco use has statistically significantly higher mean cadmium levels in blood which is one of the things tested for in the commercial markets in Michigan, for sure. And urine, I'm not going to give all those numbers. <laughs> statistically significantly higher mean lead levels in the blood and urine. Wow. So the discussion is our news, our results suggest marijuana is a source of cadmium and lead exposure. Research regarding cannabis use and cannabis contaminants, particularly metals, should be conducted to address public health concerns related to the growing number of cannabis users. Now that's some interesting just to me because those are both, both those with heavy metals are tested for in the commercial market of Michigan anyway. So that is something that's tested for here. Both. It is interesting. And then the other interesting thing is I wanted you to read that abstract really quickly. And then I'm gonna just jump down to the first uh, chart. This is all demographic data, um, race, ethnicity, age, et cetera. Um, but then we continue to scroll down and we hit metals okay and then non-marijuana slash non-tobacco use i'm only using the m word because that's what they put in the data i prefer cannabis so exclusive cannabis use um exclusive tobacco use and dual use like arsenic i know we were just talking about lead and cadmium but like you can see arsenic levels are lower for one example um i was thinking that that was actually lead but you can see here lead 0 0.33 versus 0 0.3 non-marijuana user versus exclusive marijuana user so they just said that the lead was higher in marijuana users. But when you actually go down to the data and look at it side by side, that looks like uh, a lower amount to me. So I think we need to look a little bit more into the data there. And I guess we'll do the same with cadmium. 0 0.15 versus 0 0.13. Again, lower in exclusive marijuana use. Maybe it's higher. I don't think in... we're reading that chart the right way. Okay, table two, median interquartile range, metal levels measured in urine. Um, something per gram, micrograms per gram in blood and uh, micrograms per liter for lead across categories of non-marijuana slash non-tobacco equals 4,666, exclusive marijuana use 358. So that's a small group. That people that's that just the median though. They're just in this chart, they're just reporting the median in the first number. And then it's the range is the number in parentheses. So yeah, you're low and your high numbers. So going back down, I guess we can look at cadmium. There's 0 0.09 is the lowest for non-users. And then 0 0.26 is the highest. Strange. I mean, I can just tell you, Jake, they're not going to publish this with data in this table that directly contradicts what they say in the, the paper. So yeah, we but... read more carefully to understand that. I, I don't think that the analysis that says their own data disagrees with what they're saying is going to prove to be correct in the end. There's something else. I, I don't know what it is, but and what what I yeah, wouldn't this, your review here. This, well, this, that's why I want to go through it. I just wanted to jump to that because when I heard this, that's what I looked at. And as somebody who's I feel like somewhat yeah. scientifically competent, when I read that data and looked through this, I mean, yeah. As an example, on the last one, both the things that I read that I thought I remembered, I was correct about. Health Canada was the one who funded it. And the other thing that I mentioned as well was it turned out to be correct. It was confiscated samples. And so looking at this again for the second time, I do think that 
there might be some discrepancies, but I do think we should go through it a little bit more slowly, look at the methods and results and all that to uh, well, well, see where they're actually getting better. understand that chart of data at the bottom. I, I think that I'm not trying to challenge how closely you read these articles in advance. I'm just saying it's unlikely that they're going to publish the chart of data that directly refutes the, what they're trying to say in the yeah. article. So we need to better understand what exactly is going on there, because I agree with you. It, it, it looks like it doesn't agree with what they're saying. My question is still about the statistical. Um, what is it? Wait, I just lost my the word significance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like like anyone could just say that. It's like we, oh, I, there's, there's, there's it would have to be more, though, Tal. There'd have to be a number that's higher. And they'd have to, even if they like change the amount of significance, it would have to be higher to say that it's significant. Like there's has to be more amount of lead or more amount of cadmium in the group's lead for them to say that. Otherwise, right, it's just falsification of data. What makes it significant? You know what I mean? It's a P power. Tau, this is a measure in statistics about how likely that is to just be a random variance. So if it's if it could if it's close enough, it might just be random that it was less or more. But if it's far enough away, then it becomes right. statistically unlikely that it was just random. Just random. And at that right, point, right. it becomes statistically significant. And the point at which it becomes statistically significant is a function of statistics about how big the sample size was, basically. So that's not that's not subjective to somebody just saying this is significant or not. That actually means that there is a, a very small chance that this difference was just because of randomness. Random. Okay. All right. Well, and there's, there's varying levels of like the, the P value. If it's P of 0. 0.0001, it's going to have a much, you know, higher statistical significance of like P of 0. 0.05, which I think is like the standard or 0. 0.1. So the, it's like, if something is one in a trillion, it's very unlikely that it's just a coincidence, right? Uh, or whatever, you know, but if it's one in a hundred, maybe yeah. there's confounding factors that are accounting for the thing that we're seeing. Um, I read through all the previous stuff and I didn't take anything that gave me any further information, but we'll go to the results, I think. Uh, the characteristics of NHANES participants by marijuana and tobacco use categories are shown in table one. Characteristics by recent use among exclusive marijuana users are shown in table S5 in comparison with non-marijuana users. So I think the S5 is what we need to go to, not table one, uh, but that might be the next one. Let's see. BMI, ethnicity. Oh yeah, so table one, the one that you were looking at the first time is just people that have been doing it recently, maybe, based on what they say there. Well, I was curious as to when they started testing for heavy metals in certain states, was it before 2018 or after 2018? It depends on what state. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's kind of old. 2018 is when our uh, California went legal uh, recreationally or adult use. So that might be where that number is coming from. But um, so, yeah, just looking back at the table, so here's table one. And like, was the other one S5 that I was looking at? Table two, where is S5? It's going to be in the supplemental materials, probably. Okay. That's what I mean by Figure S. one. Some of these, I think we might need to delve into to actually help us understand further exclusive marijuana, exclusive tobacco. And well, I think some of the takeaways here are that cannabis is a bioaccumulator. In the presence of heavy metals, it will accumulate them. And one of the places that it will put them is in its flowers. So 
Well, this is a real issue that we cannabis users should be aware of and sensitive to. That's why heavy metal testing is done for cannabis. Um, the best cannabis is grown in, in an environment that doesn't have any heavy metals in it. Um, and we become sensitive to even trace sources of heavy metals, like we've talked about on this show previously, the stabilizers that they use in pharmaceutical grade um, hydrogen peroxide, um, things like that, because the plant will take them up. The plant takes them up basically through similar processes that it takes up nutrients. Um, and I, I mean, I, I do think this is something that cannabis users should be aware of. And like I said at the outset, I think it's a, a, a real compelling argument, one of the few real compelling arguments for indoor grow. Um, the only other one I think is, is sort of legal. Um, but this being able to isolate the plants from heavy metals with a heavy bioaccumulator that we're going to eventually smoke, um, it's an important point. Yeah, I also want to echo a sentiment that I that I saw in the chat, which is that, uh, yeah, there are organisms out there that can bioaccumulate like heavy metals and things. But I think uh, this is very, very often misunderstood or misconstrued as like getting rid of the heavy metals. Like um, you're going to need like a nuclear reactor or something to, to turn elements into other elements. So the heavy metals, yeah, you can, you can absorb them. You well, can here's the thing. I'll, I'll give a big shout out, and I'm not sponsored by them. Metabolize, but... you can metabolize compounds that have heavy metals in them, but you can't get rid of them. You still have to process. No, you, by pulling out the weeds after they grow, you can remove them from that local area, though. So that's what Which they do with bioremediation. They'll grow plants have... that accumulate the heavy metals, and then they'll pull those plants out um, to remove the heavy metals from that soil. But yeah, yeah no, which is good. Plants, and then you got to deal with those plants that have. Yeah, we can do the same thing with nuclear. Example. But I wanted to just mention the where this brass tacks actually. We're getting into the weeds a bit, and it is important to do obviously at times, especially when we go into the science. I know some of the stuff bores some of the people, and some of the people these are their favorite episodes. But from a, a grower's perspective, how can you make a difference? Does it matter? There is a group out there, at least one that I'm familiar with, because I get products from them partially because of this buildasoil.com tests every one of their products and provides heavy metal testing and they get zeros across the board. And if anything, and same with uh, formerly uh, Swan Swanson, Michigan made mix. He had his stuff all tested for heavy metals before I purchased from them. So getting laboratory testing that's current on inputs is going to give you a significantly higher chance of avoiding testing positive because some of this stuff, although we get it in our blood from your broccoli or your kale or your lettuce or any other foods that you eat, small, tiny amounts. Um, the FDA and other organizations have said that like lead, for example, is one that like no uh, levels are good, right? So even small amounts of it are not good to have. But like, I also know somebody, my buddy in Florida works in a lead mine. He is a tradesman and he got his lead levels tested in his blood and it was like uh, 1.4 when he started. His company says if you get to a 21 in your blood, then they let you go. At 50, OSHA says you're like considered too risky and you can no longer work in any industry that involves lead. So the levels that we're seeing here, 3.27, obviously they're not good and, and they will accumulate over time and we don't want to continue to 
accumulate heavy metals. So avoiding them is a great thing, but they are still relatively low. Uh, and, no. and, and looking at the comparisons, let, let's, what's the highest number on any of these? Go through and we can look. I mean, oh, this one's terrible. Strontium, 97.11. I want to make one point, kind of a little pushback to some of the the mood I see in uh, some people in the, the chat. You know, we've been waiting for science like this to be done with cannabis for a long time. And I, I appreciate that we reviewed these kinds of articles. Uh, I think we do a pretty good job of being critical with them and looking at things like where they're funded and what their sample size is and how they're growing the plants. And you know, whether the results really align with what they're saying. But I sense a certain hostility to like any article um, <laughs> that's funded by like any government sources, like, you know, all science is government propaganda. And I just think that, guys, we've been waiting for this science for a long time. And it, like, you know, it's not always 100% high quality, but dismissing it as government propaganda is is pretty short-sighted i would say with yeah that. it's it's and not now. the cdc yeah. making these uh announcements just to say that maybe that's why the people are skeptical but let me also point out there's many uh reports of heavy heavy amounts of lead in rolling papers and blunts so perhaps that's a contributor too to these uh levels Absolutely. And I think that that wouldn't be parsed out in exclusive tobacco use or exclusive cannabis use because people who smoke blunts don't consider themselves tobacco users. They consider themselves exclusive marijuana or cannabis users. Typically, they don't think like, oh, I, I smoke tobacco because I buy a pack of Switcher sweets each week and bust them down and, and roll it up. There's still tobacco in there. So that is something that I think survey data does come down to some small amounts of unreliability, but I still think that there can be interesting things parsed from it. The thing that I kind of was looking at is like looking at these levels. Um, and I think Doc is correct. It's it's more in the extremes, not in the medians, but I, I'm kind of pissed they only give us the median and then the interquartile range of the lows and the highs. But like just, I mean, I'm using my own eyes. I've looked at every single table that they provided in this study. I've scrolled through and looked at all of the methods, materials, and all the other stuff now. And it just doesn't make any sense to me that this seems like it could be a misinterpretation of data or misreporting. Sometimes they literally just like this right here where it says ex exclusive marijuana use might have gotten flip-flopped with non-marijuana use. That I've kind of stuff happens. That. I've seen that in papers before, like that exact th exact same thing. So the data gets flip-flopped and then that might be the reason that we're seeing this. But um, yeah, just going off of what they've provided here, the, the highest versus the lowest numbers, like 5.26 versus... I think 2.51, 2.38 is the lowest. And that comes from uh, exclusive marijuana use, 2.35 exclusive uh, tobacco use, actually. So tobacco use is showing the lowest range on the uh, total arsenic, but they have 3.44 as their average or median. So like, it's interesting, but like to me, what this kind of says is like, they're finding some statistical significance within this data, even though when you're looking at it with your own two eyes right here, like, Cadmium, 0 0.15, 0 0.13, 0 0.24. Obviously, exclusive tobacco use is the highest. Um, but again, there's ranges. Um, but the amounts, obviously, you don't want any. But the amounts are all fairly low. And these could come from other exposures. What controls are being done to show that it's not coming from foods you know, or diet? Some people have worse diets than others, that they might be exposed to more heavy metals and things like that. So I think that this paper, the reason that I wanted to focus on it is 
when I saw it going around the community, every sort of just accepted it as like the fact of what the headline read, which is CNN saying. And actually the reason, when I look at the actual study, it doesn't say immediately, other than the abstract, it does reference that. And it gives this uh, one line here of results talking about their significance and what they found. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that sometimes the headlines can be a little bit misleading and that more thorough research needs to be done. But I agree with Doc. I'm happy that the research is being done because it is uh, necessary for us to continue to learn and grow as a community. We don't want to have people getting sick from what we view as a medicine, or many of us do. Yeah, I agree. And I also also want to say that, like, yeah, it's a it's kind of a it's a like I've said before, sort of a spurious point to make if um if you're gonna look at everything like, oh, you know, it doesn't agree with what I think, then it must be some sort of uh, you know, a propaganda piece or hit piece of some kind. Confirmation bias is real. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it absolutely. Is. And, and I, also I, didn't I think want to call anybody out there. Go ahead, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Oh, sorry. I just want to say it's it's uh, sensible to be like uh, sort of always like thinking about that. Um, and I also think that it's, it's also understandable because for a long time, uh, yeah, uh, the the prohibitionary research and other sorts of things were not fair. No, they were not. You know, absolutely. So I can totally understand why people would be sensitive to that. And so I get it, but um, I think that uh, you have to be more uh, specific with your criticisms, I think. Um, you have to find something that's really a smoking gun, I think. And that can be hard to do. And, and I mean, I right. guess I guess a sufficiently, a sufficiently obfuscatory um, group could just like not give you the clues, I guess. But then then it's like, well, then everything could be that, right? So... You have to be a little bit more um, uh, assiduous. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, I suppose. I just saw a funny, ironic one that was like talking about a honesty researcher and how they were fabricating their data. So that was just like, you know, pretty ironic. The I think. story. Yeah, it's actually a Harvard professor, but she collaborated with somebody at Duke, I think. She's now suing the people that, that like accused her of fraud and they're going to like lose everything they have trying to defend themselves from this lawsuit yeah that whole thing but well, yeah no academic fraud absolutely happens i totally encourage everybody to be very critical thinkers um that's not at all the message that i was trying to give like you stop being critical and just accept this science i mean at all but you know being critical is is really trying to understand something and understand like whether it was biased or what was done. It's not just like, oh, this was funded by some government agency. And so it's obviously propaganda. It's, I mean, unfortunately, like that's how most good research is funded. And most of the time when you get a, a research grant like that, you apply for a grant and then you don't hear from those people again. You're, you have to submit things to them. But it's not like they're standing over your shoulder and telling you what to write or telling you what to, to find in your findings. And, you know, if that's the level of sort of conspiracy or paranoia that we're at, I don't think we're going to get very far. Um, so it's good, well, to be critical, but we, we have to be able to to 
understand kind of how these things work and whether or not this is something that we should we should take as uh, many or put any credence in. I think well, both you can know be true. the story about the guy who wrote the story about chocolate helps you lose weight. They fabricated it all. Then he just paid three fifty to put it in a peer reviewed uh, something, and then but we're giving it, examples of when picked up by the media when science goes wrong. It, obviously, media, yeah, like we can find yeah, and cherry pick examples. But that's like why that's we have saying. to be critical too, right? I mean, that's why we still have to like right. be critical and accept this. We're not just like, oh, look where this was published. I'm going to believe every word it said. It's us to, you know, make sense, but. We yeah. can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we do <laughs> if we're going to say we can't trust any government research, even though the government has lied. They, especially about mm-hmm. cannabis, especially in the past, have been harsh on cannabis and their prosecution of it. Things like holding patents for neuroprotective properties since 2003, but still keeping it in a category that claims that there's no medical benefits. There are legitimate reasons why people in our audience and others are. Uh, dissatisfied with our government and how cannabis has been regulated and researched throughout the years. But at the same time, there are also legitimate researchers here in the U.S. and Canada and Israel and all over the world that are doing their best with the grants that they're given. I worked in college in a government-funded lab by, you know, I think it was the FDA uh, who gave us one of the grants that I was working on. And we were getting people to quit smoking cigarettes by alternate, like a few different methods. And we measured the results. And, you know, it was just like, very fucking straightforward. We tried to do the science that we were trying to apply. And then like people are like, oh, big tobacco is they're big, you know, they're going to be over controlling and then domineering. They provided us free shit. They gave us free vape batteries, free ever, like, you know, so that we could give people stuff to try other options. Like is vaping an alternative way? Is cold turkey going to be the way? Is there certain types of diet? Like we experimented on a, a few different things, but it's not like because there was funding or uh, stuff that came from in this example, like the government or even like a big tobacco company or a battery producing company that we were like slaves to them. We ran the research and recorded the data as the data happened. You know, the people came in, I'd sit down with them. Uh, the other researchers would sit down with them. We'd ask them questions and ask how things are going, provide them more of what they needed if they needed it. And, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate it and we, we look for conspiracies because it's fun. It's exciting. We want to be the first one in to, to bust it. And I love researching you know conspiracies or scams or all this other stuff but at the same time i realized like the reason that we have heat and air conditioning and lights and you know satellites for my gps to get me to any location that i want to get to is because of science and good science that's been done and improved upon and built off of the backs of great science before it so i understand the skepticism but well at the same time though it's great to be skeptical but to a point for sure because you also get it reminds me of the old heads uh in growing where they don't they didn't want to switch from hps lights to led lights you know that they want to you know stick their heads in the sand when it comes careful to, noah's still with us <laughs> they want to stick their heads in the sands when it comes to new science and they just don't want to embrace it and they just want to dog it or not believe it or or whatever when all the evidence well the first leds martin we know made them that way i'm pretty sure the first leds introduced gave them reason to be skeptical no i don't True. think so. no, not the, the, the blur people i'm talking about not uh, the same people i'm talking about but same people i'm talking about the people that the just completely want any kind of a new anything they won't even give it a shot they won't listen to any of the science they don't listen to anything they'll shoot it down before you've even finished your sentence 
that's the kind of people I'm talking about. And it's like, it's sad because they're limiting themselves. It's not limiting me in any way. I could still do what I want and that's fine, but I want everybody to grow <laughs> and you don't grow. That's you, you just stop growing as a grower. If you limit yourself to just one way of growing and then never improve, eventually you're going to be left behind. Uh, when you're everything a grower. You still got a couple of HPSs. Is the LED outperforming? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm running HPS and, uh, uh, you know how it goes. I try not to say controversial stuff, but I'll just say uh, <laughs> yeah. a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that, uh, my buddies have that grow with even the, I'm talking Gavitas top of the line LEDs, my stuff tastes better. So I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just Not chilling. The reason why. I'm just yeah, we don't know the reason, reason why. why. Right. I would agree. It's more than the light. It's hey, no, it's growing. It's a great uh, cultivator. I do know how to grow good weed, but I just exactly give yourself some credit. It's not the light. It's you. I just, I'm always just so hesitant to mix it up, you know, with, with when it comes to lights, but I, it also, it's just the money. Like I've got a lot of money tied up into it. And uh, one of these days I'm going to, you know, try and ask Doc. I've offered you a light before and you've like, yeah, no, I don't want it. So let's that. not, let's not play games about it being the money. I wasn't going <laughs> to charge you. I appreciate it too, man. <laughs> yeah it's about the money anyways so, there is a thing though it is about the money for a lot of people it is it is so i'll say that and and I'm, yeah. i pulled up a chart right here called the product adoption curve where it describes the first people are called innovators and then you have your early adopters the chasm is when like the majority i think of people start to like maybe 40 or 50 percent uh early majority or maybe 50 percent is right here but i i forget what exactly this the chasm is for late majority and then laggards so you can see this in any technology from computers to vehicles to lights to cell phones the chasm is like it needs to reach a certain critical mass before it will get to the majority so like for evs for example you need to have a certain amount of charging infrastructure before a majority of people will be willing to to do that and so you get like all the early adapters but then there's this this lag that they're everybody yeah, everybody knows. Don't buy the first model. Wait till they fix the kinks and get the second edition or whatever. No, right. But you don't want to put a record over I'm there on the that. end either. But I'm a, I'm a friendly in reminder. That. Friendly so, so reminder this, that, like back in the days of locomotives, like people thought that stuff would like steal your soul and stuff. People were like, "Don't get on those locomotives." There are people who you know, don't trust that will steal your soul. <laughs> if you go to spots across overseas, people think that photographs will steal your soul, and they won't let you take a photo of them or like walk through no. a market with a video camera. Or like, if you fall you. asleep with an electric fan going, you know that might be uh, in, that might be hazardous to your health. South Korea. I'm in Mennonite. I'm in Mennonite country and partial Amish. Yeah, they're they're on board with that kind of beliefs. But I was gonna say, so I I was HPS. And I had my first, when I got my first LED light, it was a FCE 4800 from Mars and it kicked ass undeniably. It was, uh, it did it, it did it. It did it just as good as HPS and it was less electric and less heat. So and you yeah, can run it closer to the plants yeah. and get better coverage better across coverage. the area. Coverage yeah. is really key on that doc. Yeah, that made, that's what made a huge difference. Every nug. And every place yep. just about was, you know, even. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a believer in LEDs. Don't take me wrong on that one. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say was that, uh, and I, if anyone knows the uh, the term, please let me know. Usually I'm not stumped by such things, right? But something capping, I forget what it was called. But there was a phenomenon during like the time of the Black Panthers where like 
a really easy way to infiltrate a group of activists is to just, um, you know, just say that, uh, that they're wrong and have other people tell, you know, say, oh, this person's incorrect or this person's lying with like no proof. Oh, they would easy yeah, to do that. That tore the Black Panthers apart. Unfortunately, they told people that they were talking so about easy. each other. So and so said this about you. So and so, and the two leaders, and they go to war with each other, and they create chasms and subgroups, and then they yeah. essentially the three letter agencies killed off a few of those leaders and uh, turned them against each other. Is is sad, but that's mm-hmm. an interesting so, history. To me, that's a you know, I mean, like that kind of stuff can happen, and it's very easy to uh, let that sort of corrupt what is otherwise. Like, for example, um, there was a big thing, and I don't want to belabor the point, the pros are active. No, but um, the, like, that superconductor uh, media hype that happened a few weeks ago, and that was proven to not be... uh, They've been hyping that since I was a child, literally. Well, yes, that's true, too. It's just around the corner, everybody. decades, yeah. It's just around the corner, everybody invests. Uh, yeah, and I was happy to see people were a lot more, or at least a lot of people that I sustainable saw. fusion recently for like the first time in human history. So like, it actually, that is, is cool. I hope yeah. that it works out. It's just like they have been, like I said, saying this since I was a kid and promising it. And I hope I, I believe in trust, but verify. You know, trust that they're actually doing the work, but maybe verify it. And when it actually happens, you know, if there will be, if fusion is sustainable, they'll make it and it'll make power more affordable and they'll scale it and they'll make it all over. I think we're a ways from it being sort of a free source of power for everything, but like we can maybe light a light bulb for a few hours or something now. You know, I mean, like it's, it's got some ways to go there, but sure. Thanks to Canada, though, the hydrogen reactors look really good the hydrogen fuel reactors they're doing a lot of advances in canada i haven't seen much here in the united states but canada's we're all in on solar here it's really basically a battery it's a way of storing energy more than it's a source of energy itself i mean it becomes a source of energy but you have to manufacture it so you use energy to make hydrogen and then you can use a fuel cell later to convert it into electricity and like drive your car or something like that They've tried, like uh, with vehicles, for example, in California, we have hydrogen stations for the Toyota Mirai and uh, Hyundai Mirai and a few other hydrogen vehicles. And unfortunately, the cost to put in the infrastructure, the pumps, like they have a different, it looks like a gas station, but it it has like a more high pressure pump to fill up your thing. And like the car is funny enough, they literally like will pee on the road. Like some of them actively just drip water as they're driving. Uh, One of them I saw, it like builds up water in a tank and you press a little button and it just like spurts it all out at one time. So it literally looks like your car is like peeing on the ground. The problem I see with that is every home already has an electrical outlet. You might need to get a plug to, you know, uh, electrician to come out and, you know, make it 220 instead of 120. But even some of the smaller lighter cars, you can just with electric or hybrids, you can plug it into your own house. Everybody's got a gas Yeah, station. but if you don't live in a house, if you live in an apartment building and you don't have parking and you have all these other issues that are big problems for early adopters that don't get across that chasm in that chart that we saw there, right? Um, so a hydrogen I'm, I'm car is like refueling a, a sure. gasoline car in terms of the time it takes and recharging uh, electric cars still is a lot longer. I don't think this is the topic of our podcast, though, but it's it's fascinating. Right. I think we we're just talking about like technology and how when it comes in, it uh, people adopt it at different rates for different reasons. But it can be insightful to why certain technologies are adopted and implemented yeah. within our. Uh, and I think that's like one of the perfect examples because HPS versus LED, again, it's, it is an affordability thing. And it's also a familiarity thing. People don't yeah. trust the new stuff. Just there's no two ways about it from the Luddites who destroyed the technology that was, you know, replacing their jobs. So they felt to people in modern times, 
a lot of people look at new stuff and fear it or don't want it. And I'm not saying that's anybody on this panel or anybody in this chat, but it is a certain percentage of people. And like, I do drive an EV. So people will like literally just talk shit to me unprovoked about it. Like, yeah, oh, that thing's fucking terrible. It's going to fucking blow up, catch on fire. I'm like, okay, whatever you think, man. And uh, it, it works for me. I live in a place that I don't have charging at home, but they're super charging and I could charge for 15 minutes or whatever. And we figure out ways to make things work. And like, I was a pretty anti LED person until I tried it. You know, I was growing with HPS when I started and I got to CMH and I was like, oh, CMH is the best thing ever. And I was like, oh, there's actually a lot of heat to kind of manage. So I got a properly sized LED and fucking it changed my, my grow game. I saw all these other people getting beautiful buds and uh, better structures and more frost than I was. And it's like, you know, there's probably something I could do. And in Noah's case, like he has his HVAC set up to be running with, uh, you know, uh, HPS. Yeah. And the whole, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is a mentality I've kind of grown up with because it's like, so many things in life when you try to change it sometimes it does come with new challenges and that are unwarranted if, there's if always like, that initial cost and learning curve absolutely um you know it's being told that the place you'll get to is easier and cheaper in the long run that kind of forces you up over that hill but there's absolutely a hill I, I think that's a lot like me setting up my automatic watering system. It takes like a few hours to set up my automatic watering system. It only takes like two minutes to just go in there and manually water the plants. So like I have to stop at some point and invest more time and energy to like, you know, save this thing. And, and through a longer period of time, it's going to be worth it. Um, yeah, I, I, I get that. You just touched on something that I think growing does a great lesson uh, or a great job of teaching the lesson of, which is return on investment. Whether that's a piece of equipment that you buy, a light, whether that's time setting up, you know, your investment was, it takes me two hours to set up watering, but now I don't have to water it two to five minutes every single day. So that, you know, two hours over a month or two months is you hit a point, a critical period of like, you've gotten your return on investment now that two hours yeah. has been paid off. And then after that, it's just like you're all in the green now. Like you have free time that you're not yeah, watering. You're in the green pretty much, even, even though it's only a few minutes. It's a few minutes. It's sort of a mandatory time of the day and it can interfere with other things. So just being kind of released from that, yeah, it pays itself off immediately, but not day one. Day one, it's more work setting up the automatic watering system than it would be to just go in there and water. But if you can take a longer sort of perspective on that but like i also know that that's the case and somebody that's converting to a new technology they they don't necessarily know the beauty is there's a light at the end of the tunnel with like youtube and other growers you can see communities of people that have done side by sides like gml when he first started growing on youtube he was all hps and then he did yep. like a side by side of a bunch of hlg lights against a bunch of hps lights and even though he had huge issues he still did better on his led side with like less wattage and, and, you know, all this other factors. And so, uh, Noah, your garden's looking beautiful, by the way. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just talk over no, there and no problem, man. but uh, I did spotlight. So everybody who was watching got to see some dankness over there. I saw those triple burgers stacking up nice. It was all in the back. over so soon. <laughs> did you want to tell us anything about that? Noah? Oh yeah. Uh, just having fun. Um, so these ones right here are the two new ones. That one is, uh, some type of an ice cream cake cross. That's a, T1000, those the triple burger, and this is apple fritter right here, fucking with duct tape in the front. Oh yeah, I had to pull down the dosing auto, but man, this uh, this right here, this triple burger just keeps going. But uh, 
last night I came in and it didn't take any water and I was already thinking I might pull it here. So it did, it, it, I gave it a lot of water. I gave each one like twice as much as I normally do just to kind of see if it would trigger something. But, uh, yeah, the shovel burger, it is, or oh, it's right there tomorrow or the next day. It's like week 10 or something. I bet you it's reeking. I bet you it's oh got so much gosh. loud, just insane. <laughs> aroma yeah it's pretty good I'm, I'm blessed man i'm lucky you know i've been able to talk to you guys and uh do a little bit of uh research and uh learn trial by error and do it you know and i have fun doing it man i would encourage anybody that's listening to watch and to grow their own just so you definitely know what's coming in but man there's that that great feeling when you have a great harvest it's, it's hard to describe if you haven't done it and i hope everyone gets experienced it over and over again Absolutely. Nothing really quite like it. I'm about to start my next grow. I, I've just uh, wet some seeds. They're getting planted up tonight from Spartan Grown, the Project V, Vortex F2, open pollination. Pretty badass stuff. I'm excited. Yeah. They vegged really well last time and I had to cut my run short, but uh, this time I'm growing just that. So it'll be exciting to find a few killer ladies to pick out from there. And I hate it when, you're, when you get a new strain and you're jazzed up for it and then it just doesn't come to fruition. Like I had a uh, rainbow belt said, man, that it just didn't do it for me. You know what I mean? Maybe it's my room is a little harsh for it. I don't know exactly what it was, but the guy that gave it to me was like raving about it. And like just duct tape. I mean, trust me, if you've seen both of them in a jar and smell them, there's no way you would pick that. So it's just, you know, to each their own and each room is different. I mean, I've had people tell me that that this plant that I'm growing duct tape didn't turn out good in their room. So, you know, it just depends sometimes. It really does. I think research is so important, whether it's watching shows like this or if you're looking at a specific product, I like to watch like every video on YouTube or read like the first review from Google from like the first two or three pages, because the first couple might be like product placement, advertisement. Somebody gets sent the product and then they give it a glowing review and say it's the best thing since sliced bread or they're just a huge account and they only... I hate to say it, like some of them get big because they positively kind of review everything and they know that people buy the stuff. And so that if they speak positively about a lot of these popular things, people are going to be like, yeah, this guy said good stuff about the thing that I bought and I like, and they'll watch that video and like it and they'll comment on it. Oh, I love that thing too. I'm guilty of it myself. So um, yeah, me too. People want to go and confirm that the thing that they got already is great. Yeah. Yeah. Or that the other thing that people got was not great. You know, that's uh, it's an old, it's an old, Trick in the book. Maybe not the people oldest. People watch my videos all the time because they already have my light just to like see what I'm going to say. And they're like, right, oh, oh yes, sure. I love this light. I have this light. I'm like, okay, it's good. I mean, maybe they wanted to get some information, but yeah, they want somebody to tell them that they made a good decision on their purchase. In retrospect, and sometimes we make a purchase kind of like on a whim or, you know, a little bit quicker, didn't do all the research in, in advance. And then you do research it afterwards. And it's like, oh, good. Like I did get a good one. And like he, yeah. he's testing it in a way that shows it how I'm going to use it. And it's actually performing well. And I'm, I'm happy with my purchase. So it is nice to confirm that. And like even just little stuff, like little features, like uh, Doc will point out, like this light didn't come all the way bright. So I had to turn the dimmer up and like certain, the early Mars lights had like a, uh, it's not a ballast. What's the little thing? Um, the driver that connects the driver the driver was on the top and you had to unscrew the driver flip it over and then like use a screwdriver to dim and undim one of these early lights it was just like a what i would consider sort of ergonomic 
it. And some of them, whether it was like either tightened or, or loosened or just from the factory wasn't 100%, people were putting these lights and thinking, oh, I've got a 300 watt light and never testing what it drew from the wall, never testing its brightness. And then Doc shows this video like this one came at 75% brightness, which looks bright enough to make you think, oh, that's full blast, especially if you're upgrading from an older light or a you know, older LED that is just more burnt out and not as bright. And uh, then you find out later, like, oh, shit, I watched this review and this guy made me aware of this little fact of like, I can adjust this driver and that actually is the dimmer. And it's like not a traditional, we think of a dimmer as like a little knob that you can twist and dial up and down, but sometimes they're hidden. There's little features that aren't really promoted by the manufacturer or just not well known. So I find out little stuff about stuff that I have all the time and it's, it can be really insightful to do a little bit more research about the products that maybe you already have or are planning to get for sure. Cause uh, those little things can lead to big wins. I'll say that. I got a question that somebody emailed me, Jack. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share it online. It's a long email, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a little bit, but read like the main question in here because I think it's a good one. It's talking about in a high humidity environment, what do you to deal with the walls, basically? Try to do a sealed environment. And I don't know if they want the name shared, so I'm not going to share the name, but they know who they are. It says, uh, uh, I heard that you deal with a lot of humidity in Michigan. Curious if there's any particular material materials you prefer to use when building rooms and dealing with humidity inside and out. Same as me here in New York City. I tried doing some research and it sounds like the one thing I keep seeing people talk about is moisture barriers. I'm contemplating sealing the room with either one of those moisture barriers or some heavy duty 20 mil poly sheeting on the floors, walls and ceilings to enclose the room and keep any humidity inside my room to be vented outside and away from the rest of the house structure. But I'm thinking this could trap any moisture which normal basements get behind the wall, which would be perfect for mold growing. I already upgraded my exhaust fan for the next run, so maybe I'm just high and overthinking it, leaning towards putting a pond liner down on the floor and up a couple inches on the walls and trying to find the kind of waterproof baseboards that are used in commercial kitchens. Are there any materials you get you or the guys in Michigan prefer to use while building rooms that you found work better for this type of room compared to regular construction or just going with some mold resistant drywall and mylar? Would love to line the walls with some nice insulated panels in a perfect world, but those seem out of my price range at the moment. So what do you guys think for that kind of a situation? Dehumidifier? Yeah. yeah, maybe too. Well, reheat, but something you, you can't just, I mean, the humidity comes from the plants. It's not coming from being in Michigan or New York or coming from outside or, or anything else. So the thing I want to say to this person is the humidity is coming from like the calls coming from inside the house. The, the humidity is coming from the plants themselves. I do not recommend putting up a vapor barrier like they were suggesting. I don't think that's going to be helpful at all. It might make it like a sauna or like a sweatier condition where it's trapping moisture within because the plants are probably uh, respiring. And if you don't have a strong enough exhaust and dehumidification or reheat. But, but, but doc, outside duck surrounding environment does affect if it was brutally dry, even if your plants, it would help, you know, it would help. As all but, but unlike in this context, that usually doesn't help, Tao. So in a sealed space, right, right. Um, you want to insulate and seal off. Yeah, and then you would want a vapor barrier. Um, but in, in a ventilated space, what matters is the amount of humidity in the inflow air um, and your ability to dehumidify it. But most of the humidity is still coming from the plants. 
even if you live in a really humid area, um, you know, if it's right. humid inside enough, the spot, yeah. fire. But in a good setup in a grow room, most of the humidity is going to come from the plants. I live in the Pacific Northwest, over down by Portland, Oregon. It's one of the rainiest places in the United States. So I go through dehumidifiers quite a bit. And here's a little dehumidifier uh, advice for the listeners. Uh, I've gone through the ones, like I have a, a Quest one I've gone through. I've gone through IDL, I, Ideal Air. But I like the ones from Home Depot and Lowe's. And I'll explain to you why. Because they don't, they don't really anticipate most people are going to have them running 24-7 like I do. So I get a three-year warranty on it. Now, granted, I've only had to use the warranty once. But my <laughs> Ideal Air lasted like a year and a half. So the ones that, so the Home Depot one, Lowe's ones, they work just fine. They have like LG ones. And um, yeah, so I, I've, I'm very familiar with the uh, dehumidifier. I don't know a lot about LEDs, but I know about dehumidifiers. A little That's bit. a great tip because, I mean, yeah. home grow status, like don't buy cannabis branded stuff specifically. Dehu is a dehu. Reheat is something that's not used enough. Uh, cannabis Mechanical has talked about it. And I think he's trying to actually make a specific smaller scale slash or even more commercial scale thing like reheat specific but I, I know that a lot of them he just uses like current acs and then pays like 15 or 30 or 50 extra bucks to get the reheat feature which is just a add-on to most hvac systems that in, will in a small enough space you would just do it as a separate heater so you'd have an ac and a heater and like the grow tent becomes the mix room where those things happen basically um, it becomes easier to set it up that way. But yeah, I, I agree. Back to the question here. You can't be just like putting down waterproof floorboards. I mean, there can't have be like water on the floor or like dripping on the floor. You can't grow plants in that much humidity. So we absolutely need to do something to dehumidify the room. I think that might be a uh, clean out the room between runs kind of uh, like I know a lot of people would like to put a floor drain in so that they can just spray everything down. And then have it all drain off and having like as waterproof of a room as possible. Sure. Seems like they can IPM or clean up after easier. So that might now, be where they're. To the other point, in. a lot of commercial facilities are, they do use refrigerated um, panels. So freezer panels that are basically oh, yeah. made for like walk in um, refrigerator rooms and they'll seal the, the whole space up with that. You get an improvement in R value, but I think the better improvement there is in a sealed room. It creates a really good seal. So you can seal those rooms with the freezer panels really effectively against carbon dioxide loss. Um, yeah. It does not sound like the the writer of the question needs to, to go that route. Um, I would still suggest, you know, making sure the, the room is kind of sealed up, but I didn't like the vapor barrier because I'm worried about what happens on the other side of the vapor barrier. Right. You know, I think do you all know what a walk-in freezer, what a walk-in freezer is or a walk-in refrigerator? Like yeah. you can yeah. fill these boxes. They're totally sealed and you can make your oh, own yeah. holes. There's no That's holes what I was just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be that I would, my dream would be to have like, you know, a whole row of those and you could, yeah, yeah, I just built a facility can. where we put those in. I mean, you order the panels as individual panels and they, you know, you can get like the 10 foot high panel or we had right. 12 foot high room walls in some rooms and 10 foot high in other rooms. But they cut the panels to be our size and then installed them all. So each room looks like a big walk-in freezer. 
You had a roof too with those panels. Yeah, the roof is yeah, there. That's awesome, dude. And that they're is- suspended across, so you can't you can't hang too much weight from that roof. That was one of the issues was whether or not the roof was going to support the weight of all the lights that we want to hang from the ceiling. So it yeah, depends on how because wide they're just freezer is, panels yeah. sitting across. We had to put yeah, I beams yeah. up on top of them and tie them up to the I beams. Nice. Yeah, this is so all I have inside a-, a metal shell building, right? That yeah. framing. The, the interior spaces and so you can absolutely go that way but that was a you know 1.5 million dollar build out it does not sound like our caller has that budget right right <laughs> I was <just> dreaming <laughs> right. yeah on a smaller scale hey, I mean, spartan, spartan and uh baked pone over at the tricone forge have done not exactly the same because they don't have the co2 uh you know retention but with uh, the PVC type, I think they call them FRP boards or something like that. Oh, yeah, board CO- I think the CO2 retention is also in there, man, because we haven't even There's replaced. No, no, we put a 50 pound CO2 tank in the flower room and we haven't replaced it. We did a whole flower run in there. We haven't replaced that CO2. It was ridiculous. Nice. Well, I mean, yeah, good seal is a good seal, right? Well, every panel we put in there... You don't have to. It's supposed to just be like tongue and groove, but we put a bead of silicone in every, on every right. single panel. So yeah, it is because we wanted to be able to just hit that wall with water. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. all PVC anyway. So that's planning for success. You know, that's like that's that's using your knowledge. And are you going to bleach? What's the the cleaning IPM regimen? Like, what are you going to do have, to go uh, through? We'll probably use bleach for the just to hand clean the tables, but uh, we have these uh, chlorine bombs. I call them chlorine bombs, but that it's a uh, uh, chlorine gas that gets released. The Procure, right? Well, Procure is one of them, but we're getting an off a different brand of one. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but yeah, it's just like a Procure. Yeah, let off a chlorine bomb. Yep. And so yeah, we'll just bomb the whole room that way. It gets everything. We don't have to worry about it. Is there a follow-up to that? Like, does it have to off-gas for a certain amount of time, or do you have to spray anything down? We let it go overnight and then come back in the next. It's, but the the return, I forget the name of the, the fancy name of that, but the uh, we, it's only supposed to be like four hours after they go off. Oh, the REI? Yeah, uh, REI. Re-entry yeah. interval? Yes, re-entry interval. It's you only can really like smell that like, stuff. Yeah, it smells like a pool. Like, if you go to a hotel with yeah. a pool, that's what it smells yeah. like. Well, and just note the REI and re-entry, like the thing that we haven't said is don't be in the fucking room when the chlorine bomb's going off because chlorine is poisonous gas to humans and it will kill you just because they use it in pools and like you can drink a little bit of it and you might get a little sick and not die. Inhaling it, just like kind of the microbutanol, eating it versus smoking it, inhaling chlorine is extremely deadly and poisonous Yeah. versus, you know, having it on your skin or, you know, ingesting a tiny amount in some water is uh, a lot different. So um, yeah, there are are products that are... There, there are products like the Procure and others where like they're meant to be used in this way that Spartan's describing, where it's like no one's in the room, you apply it, it dissipates, you come back, everything's cool. And then there's ones that are actually less, um, I don't know how the magic works, to be quite honest, but where they're more, um, they're, they're not a problem with like people or animals around. But of course, they're not as... Um, yeah, they just have to use lower doses, probably. Yeah, that's what I assume is the case, but... Um, yeah. yeah. So, so there are other product options for like different kinds of situations, but I definitely recommend that kind of a thing uh, for those sorts of setups where it's just, it's easy peasy. And if it's between doing nothing and doing something. I think that's way better than doing nothing. Right. Well, and just to speculate, they also might introduce something 
and again, this is total speculation, but I do know that there are certain drugs like that people, especially like in a military context, will take before going into a poisoning or chemical warfare situation to make the other chemicals that they're going to be exposed to less effective on the human anatomy. So oh, yeah, it could yeah. be something like that that's mixed within the chlorine that makes it safer for humans and animals so that it's not as a poisonous. I, I'm not a chemist, obviously. Iodine, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it uh, binds with the compounds and um, but it depends on what we're talking about. Yeah, I think Certainly that's for like nuclear. I think iodine oh, for yeah, nuclear yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's stuff you can also buy for um, nuclear fallout uh, that you can like put in your hair and on your skin. Uh, but you know, generally, uh, the 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 wisdom is just don't go outside if you can. Um, but fingers I actually crossed, have a we question. don't have to address that. Let's take the question. No, certainly not, not yet. Um, but we've got uh, I've got a question for you guys. Um, uh, this was from uh, this is just I'm actually gonna share my screen here. Yeah, you can see this. Yeah. Yes. So 10, 11, 12. Yeah, so this is from um, this is from some research uh, that uh, somebody was doing at some university. I've I've blocked it out because you know I don't know if people want to be shared, and I respect that. So um, usually, uh, so each plant here has eight shoots and two weeks of vegetative growth before starting photoperiod. I'm going to say this is trials. I actually didn't uh, proofread this. Uh, if you are struggling to control height in multi-tier systems, consider using a shorter period drink flower. So this was a proposition that somebody made. The cultivar Southern OG. This is week four. We have 10 hours photo period, 11 hours photo period, 12. And you can see that as the photo period increases, the like, you know, growth also increases. Now, a question that somebody had made, which is the reason why I'm sharing, is that they, they, they say that uh, wouldn't uh, more vigorous topping be a better option than less light for the sake of yields? What did yes. you find yield reduction to be? Yes, right. And I also agreed with this point. Uh, I have a little support comment here. This is from uh, LinkedIn. Uh, but the, re the researcher um, came back and said that each pinch incurs additional labor costs per plant. Labor is the most expensive input. This is obviously not a home grow, I guess, scenario, but your labor is still important. Manipulating photo period controls height without the extra costs and the photo period, shorter photo periods lower your electric bill. But I, but you know, I felt like that was a sidestep. I felt like that was a sidestep to the, the, the question, is. which is, which is, what were the yields like? So it's I'm like just, Doc uh, says, this out. more, if, if you give the proper amount of light for the full duration, you're going to get more plant, whether it's flower or leaf, whatever you're growing for, hash or, or bud or trichomes, whatever. Look at the 12 hour plant, look at the 11 hour plant, and look at the 10 hour plant. You can't tell me that you're going to yield even comparatively from the 10 hour plant to the 12 hour plant just by looking at it. Anybody can tell you that. So yeah, yeah you get a smaller plant and maybe that works for a very niche like scenario like oh i'm gonna do this so that i have i don't overgrow my space but like why not just veg for a shorter period of time and give it the full 12 hours and like get plants that are ideal heights and things like that i guess it's a tool in the toolbox but I, I would disagree with this sort of methodology of let's give it less light and make a shorter yeah. plant it's like you're just <laughs> well, growing less hold of on. it they're talking about labor here. So this is in commercial production that they're they're thinking about. Go back to that. The, oh, yes, I'm, I'm like a side behind you, maybe. I'm looking at actual YouTube, which is like not where I should be looking. But yeah, oh, okay, yeah. we are looking at this. Um, it, but it, the answer is that it's occurring additional labor costs per plant. 
Um, so I, I, I do, I mean, that's true in a lot of commercial production. You need to find ways to reduce the amount of time you're spending with the plants. Um, it sounds odd to us when we tend as home growers to maximize returns to our equipment um, or to our time. Um, but in commercial production, you often have to maximize your returns to labor uh, because it's much more expensive. So if doing something, even if it lowers your yield, if it significantly reduces your labor needs, it may be economical to do that thing. That's a valid point. That's part of the reason why I brought this up. Um, the first part was because I felt like, well, for one thing, it didn't really answer the question. So I thought that was a little bit, uh, of, you know, sort of a little suspicious, but also, but you're totally right, right? Like um, if it is a significant labor uh, change, then that can be really helpful, really useful in a, in a commercial setting. This is obviously yeah, and I really disagree with the follow-up comment, which is I don't think people running multi-tier indoor systems care much about labor and electricity. I mean, yeah. those are their two biggest problems. So they absolutely care about labor and electricity, and they're trying to get labor electricity down to a point where they can, you know, make a profit off of the produce that they're selling at the other end. So in a business, you always have, you know, the, they're motivated by profit, which is, going to be revenue minus costs. And for home growers, we're pretty much only concerned about revenue, like the size of our harvest. And we count costs very differently. So we count like if we have to buy a light or if we have to buy nutrients or something, but we don't count our labor time as anything. Um, it's like our hobby is free. We don't pay ourselves for the work that we do. If you did, if you actually, and I've done this kind of work before with peasant farmers who also don't track the amount of time they spend and don't pay themselves for their work. Um, it's one of the reasons that their, their work is viable. It's one of the ways that they're able to make a living like that. And if you all home growers listening to this, like wanted to think about your cannabis growing that way and tracked all the time you spent and then paid yourself at your going rate. So whatever you earn in your job, you know, the economics of your cannabis production would feel very different. And, you know, whether or not certain things were like the right way to do it. Now we don't because we enjoy our gardening and we go and spend time with our plants as sort of a, a positive aspect of that. Um, Jack's uh, having yeah, uh, know, been right? a medical grower for a while it's good to have visuals as you're speaking That's it what is, <laughs> being in charge of other I people's also, cars I agree with I've, I've like... often done that myself thought that exercise like okay if I was paying myself like so. I've done that exercise myself very many times so it is viable I will say that for sure and you do have to at some point you do have to limit your time around the plants uh yeah, that's, that's now especially no. Imagine if you yeah. trained somebody else and you had to like spend time training them and yeah. then trusting them and then periodically going back and like supervising them and all of that, and then you had to pay that person. I mean, that I agree. Like a reasonable salary, and then they're going to work there for a few months, and you're going to want to offer them health insurance and and stuff like that. And like I've, I've gotten into these arguments with my, my with with close family members because they're like, why don't you just pay someone to trim? Because I do all my own trimming. I'm like, dude, if by the time I pay somebody. I could have just paid myself 20, 25 an hour and then 
What if you can't trust them? You know, because you know how it goes. Like you can trust them, but you part can't. Right there. And uh, so I, I totally agree. Like I do everything myself, all of my own yeah. stuff. So I totally agree with this point. Yeah, and I also, but see, but I'm, I'm curious, and I think this is another reason why it's important to bring this topic up. Like, uh, like how much then would, how much yield do we think? I mean, of course, it's going to be contextual, right? But like, yeah, like you know, just as like a hot take or hot question, how much yield would you be willing to sacrifice for like the, obviously in a commercial setting is different, every location is different, but how much would you, do you think is like pretty reasonable? Or do you have a the, the reduction in labor costs? Yeah, I was gonna say so the labor costs are so- I'd be willing to reduce my yield by $10,000 if it reduced my labor costs by $10,050. Right, yeah. You See, so it all depends on scale and how you're valuing different things and all that. But that's the difference in kind of commercial production is it's marginal. So there's a whole branch of microeconomics called marginalism dedicated to, to sort of figuring out the exact point of economic optimal point to invest in something um, based on sort of those factors, you know, how much you're going to get, how much it's going to cost. That's true. You really can't make a generalization, I suppose. I guess I was just hoping to get a little bit more of a meat on that on that uh, point, but that is the responsible response, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a percentage game. Like so, if I'd reduce the the, I mean, depends on what the costs are because there's other costs involved, right? So doing it in, in a dollar sense, but you're paying somebody probably $15, $20 an hour, at least in a cultivation sense in their working, maybe much more than that. Um, so is their work actually going to, to produce an extra $20 worth of cannabis every hour? Um, it becomes a, a question where some of these things that you could do that would definitely increase yield just aren't worth it because it would cost oh, yeah. more to, to get that added yield than the amount that the added yield is worth. Before we uh, get to the other thing that, is, I just want to let Spartan groan. Uh, I know he's eating over there for a second, <laughs> but he, he's got about 15 minutes before Michigan Bros Grow Show. So I want to give him a chance to get his final thoughts and shout outs in before he gets running uh, and have a little bit of time to refill his tray, get something to drink and let the dogs out. Well, we're not having the Michigan Bros Grow Show tonight or tomorrow. So uh, taking a holiday off. So I'm hanging with you guys. So I'm good. I'm just stuffing my face with this edible. Shout awesome. out to anything grows. Was, you hooked it up. I was going to ask. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Well, you, Noah, you had something uh shout out to anything gross for sure but i i did cut noah off to pass well, it over to you so i wanted to let noah get back in there it doc is bringing up a lot of valid points here because when it comes to training it's like it, i know everything that in my grow room and another thing is unfortunately i've trimmed for almost 12 years 12 years now and i'm very good at it and when i see other people trim i'm like thinking what are you doing uh, i couldn't imagine well, yeah. doing that person 15 an <laughs> you hour can't be non-judgmental when you watch them trim of course. And then, and then it's like, people are like, Oh, well, can you help me trim? And it's like, dude, I want 25 an hour. I don't even know if I want to do it for 25 an hour. Cause I know I'm worth it. I know how much I can trim and how well I can do it. And I'll constantly go through like the people's trim trays. And I'm like, there's buds in here, big buds. What are you doing? Oh, I didn't see that. It's just, man, like <laughs> people can make mistakes. If you don't have experience doing some of this stuff, like they can get very costly training some of them. So I totally agree with that. And no one's going to love it. Like you do when you grow it yourself. No I mean, one yeah. ultimately the thing that makes us better. I mean, this is what I did my dissertation research, working with peasant farmers and trying to understand why people that sort of grew their own stuff 
did in, in many ways why it was better than, you know, other ways of, of living and growing. Peasants have a lot figured out. And Doc, this is one of those find, Yeah, we can peasants for me. Yeah, do you find that word a little bit uh, problematic, Tao? Is that it? Yeah, peasants. I don't like it's that. It's not name. an insult. It just it's means not an insult to for a living. That you feel land. that way. Peasant is somebody that produces for themselves, that controls their own means of production and, and produces for themselves. So they own their own or they control at least their own plot of land, or in this case, a grow tent. And they, they grow stuff primarily for their own consumption. Peasants almost always trade a portion of their product with other groups because they can't produce everything they need. So it's not like totally for their own production, but it's people that are, are investing their own labor for their own production. And they, they act in a fundamentally different way than like a capitalist farmer would act for all the reasons that we're talking about because peasants don't value their labor the same way. So I'm absolutely proud to call myself a peasant farmer. I mean, and that's <laughs> what, how I what, think of myself what, as a cannabis grower. I'm a peasant cannabis grower. What country were these peasant growers growing in? That I did my research with? Yeah, yeah. I, I did research with farmers in Southern Mexico. I've also done research in, in other places in Central America, but my dissertation research was in Southern Mexico. And there's peasants like right here in the US, trust me. We, we like doctors, you, are, you are one if you're growing your own cannabis for yourself. And in a sense, yeah. like we're susten sustenance farmers in a sense too, and that like people will trade a little bit. They're not gonna grow everything that they eat, but they'll grow as much as they can. And they'll trade off like, oh, I grew 50 pounds of tomatoes and I'm only gonna eat five. So I got 45 yeah. pounds of tomatoes that I gift to my neighbors and then I'll trade some for some cucumbers and some corn and some bananas yeah. or whatever squash. So farmers do come together. And I, I agree that peasant shouldn't be looked at like the uh, no. negative it's, stigma it, it has. That's an, an attitude that comes from sort of the, the European colonial uh, approach of doing this, that like we're civilized people and these other peasants need to be like <laughs> how to become civilized or something. Yeah. Uh, Let them eat yeah. cake. What's that? Let them eat cake. Yeah, exactly. Or the Lord and, and <laughs> serve system. Um, yeah, in order for capitalism to really take off, too, we needed to convince a lot of people that used to be peasants to become factory workers. So like in industrializing England, um, being a peasant and the, the sort of social value of being a peasant really shifted in the 1800s. As the, the commons were enclosed, the peasants were kicked off the land, basically forced into the industrialized cities to take factory jobs. And, and the sort of ethic about what a, a, a good member of society was drifted towards that, as opposed to somebody that worked the land. And they were backwards people. They weren't going forward towards modernization, towards civilization, towards urbanization. Um, there's been that, that long sort of historical tension. Long time well, you know ago, they, I came across this. Oh, we keep going, Tao. You know what they say about money? Gold is the money of kings. Silver is the money of gentlemen. Trade is the money of peasants. And debt is the money of slaves. That's an old adjective. Mm. Oh, boy. Where, do you know where that comes from? Well, uh, I never no, I don't. Before. I just know it because I'm a nerd when it comes to money. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Jack, if you want to spotlight this. Uh, it's spotlight. This. May May. Yeah. Um, I came across this long time ago, like many years ago, but it's, you know, and it kind of, I feel like it supports the point that Dr. Coco is making. Not that he needs mine, but um, you know, it's like, yeah, like these people know their land a lot of the times. And a lot of times 
uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, especially in Europe, these are multi-generational, right? Like, so, yeah, so there's a ton of, like, I also want to say that, like, I feel like um, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a perspective that people in Europe didn't, didn't have, like, some of these um, uh, understanding of the land and things like that, that, like, we maybe attribute to other parts of the world, um, which is frankly ridiculous, but yeah, like in ancient times and the medieval times and, you know, post-medieval times, feudal societies abound where uh, people would for generations know and, and keep the land. And there's a lot of yeah. um, really cool, uh, um, I guess I want to say sort of cultural value to that, that, um, that was not just in some places, not others. Basically, like the most really profound knowledge, a lot of which got lost. I think you're sort of alluding to as well, like a lot of knowledge about local land and how to grow in, in sustainable ways in different ecosystems was peasant knowledge and was passed down through this, the millennia from, you know, in within communities. Um, a, a lot of times international Western scientists with quote unquote modern crop methods thought that they knew better and tried to go around and sort of push uh, one specific way of doing agriculture that oftentimes failed and led to more insecurity and led to more poverty in, in places that were supposedly being developed. So peasants have, and I've lived with them, I mean, peasants have incredible knowledge about crop systems, about how to grow plants, about how to manage a, a community as well. Um, and I didn't go there to teach them anything. I went there to, to learn from them, to learn about how they grew plants, but also to learn about how they manage their community. Would you note that maybe sometimes peasant communities, because they're so highly skilled, identify and notice things that aren't found in the science until later on, like maybe we're seeing with cannabis, because they're so in tuned. Like uh, there's fishermen that knew about like... Um, pollution in, in yeah. certain areas because the fish that they were fishing for years and years had yeah. lower numbers or they were having sort of mutations and things like that. And they were saying there's something going wrong in this fucking day. Countless examples of that. And so many times the peasants don't know, like, because I, I worked and I went with them to a lot of the, the Cigarpa meetings um, and the Procampo meetings, which are these government agencies trying to bring programs and bring new seeds and bring new crops to these farmers. Um, and the farmers would be like, oh, they'd get all excited about one that the, the agronomists were like marginal on. And then the other ones that the agronomists were, they'd be like, that's not going to work. And they'd be laughing. They'd be like, that's not going to work. And I'd be like, okay. The agronomists would be there trying to convince the people, no, this is going to work. We know, trust us. We're the experts on this. And I'd go away from these meetings and be like, why isn't that going to work? And try to like talk to the people and figure it out. And sometimes it was like one of the projects they wanted them to grow agave and it was going to be like eight years before they could harvest agave. And the farmers are like, it's not going to work. I'm not going to wait eight years before I can make my harvest. My, my kids are going to need to eat in less than eight years, right? So like, you know, you have to be more kind of, that was my big takeaway. You have to be sensitive to like what the people are saying and how they're saying, but they're smart. They know what's going on. And they're, they're savvy about a lot of those things. Well, and they're going to do or try to do what's best for them and their families. And right. I mean, we've seen that from Moroccan or Afghani, uh, you know, hash makers that are another definition of a peasant that I think is proud of being that peasant farmer who owns yeah. a little bit of land that their grandpa owned and farmed and made hash on their dad owned farmed and made hash on. Now they're doing the same thing. Uh, regardless of legalities and who controls their country or whatever, those are some of the longest standing traditions. And um, one more thing I kind of thought of when we were talking about peasant labor and how people don't kind of pay themselves. And 
my barber who I taught how to grow, I'd go over there and I'd get my hair cut to be like 30 minutes or whatever. And then I'd be there for like an hour, hour and a half talking grow, just bullshitting and hanging out. And I'd be like, my wife would call me like, are you okay? Like, it's like fucking midnight. Right. And uh, I'd be like, oh yeah, shit. Sorry, I just lost track of time in the grow. It's easy to do. And like one of the things That's he awesome. actually, he taught me was like, uh, I was, I'll use this as a little thing for anybody who's listening. I'm pointing at my uh, background. I have some leaves on the stalk of the little guy growing, climbing up it, but I would take uh, individual leaves when I was like, all right, I'm going to remove the bottom third of the canopy. It's a little overgrown. I'm going to get a little more airflow. So I'd go through and I'd go pluck, 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 and individually take each leaf. And when I told my barber, I'm like, all right, we're going to go through and remove this bottom third of the canopy. I started plucking like individual ones and he just grabbed the stem and took his fingers, put them like this and slid straight down the stalk, popped every one of the fucking leaves off in like seconds. And his branch that he did literally took under a second where it took me like three, four or five seconds on that branch. So he showed me something that like in a commercial setting for labor, that's the way that I would tell him to do it. As long as it's not like, you know, you're not fucking up or breaking the stems or, or making huge open wounds, like worse than you would if you individually plucked. But it was amazing how much quicker. And I, again, because <clears throat> at the time I hadn't actually figured out like what my dollar per gram would be if I included labor at like what I make at my day job. <laughs> And when you do that, it's like, holy shit, it's actually a lot more expensive uh, than people would consider like their home grow. But even then you can keep your input costs low and, and make it like quote unquote affordable. I'm not selling it. I just did it more for the input uh, understanding and all that. And I think that'd be a fun one to talk about. And again, in the future, we talked about maybe uh, tracking input costs and how to lower them as cheap home growers might be a topic of the future. But with that said, we got about three minutes left and six of us here. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it first to Dr. MJ for final thoughts and shout out. Hey, I was typing. Um, I, I love chatters. I felt bad earlier because I felt like I called chat out. So chat, I hope you forgive me. Um, much grower love to the chat. I, I enjoyed the topics. I enjoyed the conversation. I think we do a good job with, with reviewing the, the articles. I don't think we're overly sort of, um, you know, complimentary or critical, but we try to to do a good job and, and analyze that and, you know, learn from what's there to be learned from. Um, so I enjoyed that. I enjoy all the conversations about sort of global agriculture and peasant dumb and, and everything else. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I have a YouTube channel, Dr. MJ Coco. I have a grow light video probably coming out before our next show. So check that out. I'm doing the SE 7000. Um, check me out on YouTube. Check me out at CocoForCannabis.com and back here next week. Thank you so much. And uh, speaking of YouTube, <clears throat> we got our first strike uh, on one of our videos. I appealed it and I watched the video twice. So I'm confident I read the thing, the community guideline that they said that we broke. They said that we were selling pharmaceuticals without pharmaceutical uh, you know, recommendations from a doctor or something like that, which is absolutely nothing that we've ever done on any of these shows. But it was just a, probably a misunderstanding in a report. Um, but that led to the podcast wasn't able to be downloaded until Tuesday last week. So for the podcast listeners, I mean, you might not be listening to this, but I apologize for the delay. I normally get it out on Monday. It used to be on Sunday, but I can't even, it, YouTube won't let me physically download it. It used to be done processing 10 minutes after. And now it takes 24 hours sometimes, uh, 48 hours sometimes. So I'm not really sure what's going on with YouTube backend. Maybe it's because of strike, maybe not, but uh, wish us well and uh, hope that that appeal process goes through and uh, the cheap home grow can continue on this chat. Uh, channel and page moving forward so with that said you didn't I get locked out for a week jack after the strike uh maybe i did but maybe it happened like on sunday and then i don't, I don't know i really don't know um 
No, that's surprising. That Normally, one. a strike is associated with a one-week lockout from the channel, um, which would have been probably through today. Maybe that's that's different. But I'm sorry that that happened. I hope the appeal goes well. Yeah, well, and it, it was weird because like I I just noticed it was like one from a few weeks ago. So I don't know. We maybe said somebody pissed somebody off, but sorry for the people out there. We we try to be honest and uh, give what we actually think and 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 give all the perspectives and sides. So that I think there's some new program going on. My channel's been reacting a little bit weirdly lately. I got a new age restriction on an old video, um, and videos have been like the traffic on the videos have been bumping around. So they might have done some sort of update that and send the sensor through or something. Yeah, the algorithm I think got tweaked recently, and and with that they come up with new rules and regulations, things like that. But next up, I'll pass it over to Matthew Gates. Yeah, I also found the chat uh, super lively and uh, we're asking some pretty good questions. But also, you know, I think it's important to make the point that, uh, you know, it's all done in earnest, at least on my on my end. <laughs> I think that's the same for the panel. But uh, yeah, if you want to check out, if you want to get more information about pests and plant health and that kind of a thing, remember three places for the most part or four. My Patreon is always up uh, for $1 a month. You can join my Discord. I had a bunch of people uh, come in recently from Pestapalooza with, with Growcast and also some other uh, uh, advents. You can also find me on YouTube, Zenthanol, and I have that AFID video coming out. You can also check me out at Sync Angel on Instagram, where I'm actually posting some of the sections of that AFID video I've been talking about. So if you're curious to see some of those, you can check me out there. And um, also, of course, for professional inquiries, you can reach out to me at zenthanol.com. And I'm uh, excited to help people who need problems, whether they're or who want to need solving problems, whether it's on home grow or at a commercial scale, of course. And yeah, I look forward to our mutual success, everyone. Likewise, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure to have you, whether it's IPM or science or whatever other topic you're well-versed in helping us uh, tackle. Always uh, great to have you. And next up, we've got Spartan Grown all the way to the six o'clock hour for the first time since probably <laughs> the show started. Yeah, I, think, I think you're right. Yeah, I think I just want to shout out everybody on the panel. First and foremost, it's always awesome to hang with my buddies. Uh, I look forward to it on Sundays. Uh, shout out to chat. It's always good to have you guys here help us direct the show. And I love the topics of our show today, you know, and it, it always redirects us to, I think, one of the things that I'm always trying to say, and a lot of us on the panel echo the same thing, I think all of us on the panel. And that's, uh, if you really want to know what the hell you're smoking, you just got to grow your own. So I really, really encourage you to grow your own and uh, keep on growing. Absolutely. Grow your own and grow consciously. You know, be wary of those inputs, because as we're seeing, there are pesticides that can uh, get on your plants. They're not going to if you don't put them there. You know, so that's a thing to you know be knowledgeable of what you should and shouldn't put on there, and uh, just do due diligence when sourcing material. And I think you'll have uh, great successes moving forward in the home grow. And I definitely advocate what Spartan just said. And next up, we got Noah the Grower. Yeah, I had a good time today. I like the topics as well, and um, I appreciate everybody showing up every week as well. And I always have a blast doing it myself. So, yeah, I'm Noah the Girl with TVs on Instagram. You can find me there. I'll see everybody next week. Thanks for showing the garden again. It's always, uh, I think it adds a nice little ambiance. I need to try and figure out a way when yeah. I get my garden back up and going again to be able to show it off during the lives because it, it just adds a nice touch. It's growing with my fellow growers and we're really showing it. You know, I've got plants, live plants on the stream. Uh, man, I, I always reflect on it. It's like I never thought this type of show ever would have happened. 20 years ago, right? <laughs> to have people online talking about cannabis, showing off their gardens and, uh, you know, getting into all the nitty gritty. 
And uh, this was a fun one, but last and certainly not least, the American one. Hello, Jack. As always, thanks for your hosting. And it's always great to hang out with the panel and see everyone in chat. I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with 18 underscore 18s on the uh, IG. And I want to shout out Store Shine Cannabis. Um, she has set up a little website and she's uh, doing some good stuff. So check out StoreShineCannabis.com. And uh, yeah, that's about it with the shout outs. I'll see everybody next week. Good stuff. I always uh, do like to reserve this because if you do have a new shout out or it could be just yourself or somebody in the community, I like to give that kind of little section at the last few minutes of the show for people to give their final thoughts and shout outs because sometimes there's a uh, new and interesting stuff out there that people should definitely go check out. So thank you, Tao, for sharing that. I'm last, I guess, here as the host, Jack Greenstock. As you can see, there's my logo. I'm Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter, as well as as my backup account on Instagram. If you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And my website is 50strains.com, where you can get a copy of my book, 50 Strains of Green, or a uh, five-pack or 11-pack of Velvet Punch if you're interested in the United States. But with all that being said, I had a great time this week. Always do. Great time with the uh, panel. Appreciate everybody who's uh, here with us currently and all the chatters uh, present and in the future. Uh, listeners of the podcast just can't understate how much we appreciate this. I know there's a lot of content out there. There's a lot of stuff that you can be listening and watching. And uh, the fact that you dedicate these, you know, whether it's 30 minutes or two hours of your Sunday or whatever time of the week you listen to it with us uh, means something to me. And we're definitely going to do our best to keep it going and, and keep it as good as possible. So all that said, girls love everybody. Catch you all next week. Very love, everyone.